This episode of The Incomparable is sponsored by Audible, the best place to find audiobooks online. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash incomparable to learn more. The Incomparable, number 151, July 2013. Welcome back to The Incomparable. This is uh, an episode that I'd like to say I look forward to for most of the year, but I think the most accurate thing is that it takes me several months to prepare for this episode because this is the episode where we read and comment on the nominees for the Hugo Award for Best Novel. And there are five nominees every year, which means some of us read all five. Some of us read are, are not gluttons for punishment and only read some of the five books that are nominated for, for the Hugo Award for Best Novel, representing the best in science fiction and fantasy and related genre uh, long-form fiction for the year. So we did it again. We've done this the last couple of years, and we're back. So joining me in, on this journey to read novels that were nominated for awards by uh, by fans <laughs> are my guest, Dan Morin. Hi, Dan. Welcome back. Hi, Jason. I've read, by my calculations, 3.73 of these novels. <laughs> All right. Uh, fair enough. We'll get into that in more detail in a bit. Glenn Fleischman is also here. Glenn, good to have you back on. It's a delight to be here, and I believe I've re read about 4.3 of the novels, which is my highest score ever in these episodes. Wow, there's some serious bragging going on. Monty Woo! Ashley is also here. Monty at one point opted out because we were going to record this a couple weeks ago, and then when we didn't, Monty said, just wait, I will read them. How many did you read, Monty? I read three of them. And I liked about one and three quarters. <laughs> Whoa. All right. And Scott McNulty, my partner in crime, who who tends to read all five. I assume you read all five, right, Scott? I, I have read all five. All Much right. like you. Right, I have read all five all See, the way through every bitter, Whoa. bitter page. Oh, dear. There were some, some pretty bad. And I, I want to argue that these represent the best in science fiction and fantasy of the year. Because uh, you want to argue for or argue against? That? No, I'm, I'm arguing against. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. I have a meta argument I want to discuss later about that nature of what is the best, but we can talk about that later. All right, let's go through the books first, <laughs> and then maybe we can get meta at the end. I also have a sixth book that I'm going to mention, which what? was nominated, nominated for a Nebula Award and is very good, much better than any of these books, actually. And Scott agrees with me, I, I know in advance, because he's been raving about it, or he, he agrees somewhat with me. So I don't remember what book this is, but yes. <laughs> yes. Just agree, Scott. <laughs> I agree. I read a book from last year I liked. I don't think that's This is my editing relevant. method with the incomparable is that <laughs> I declare things to be fact and if they're later proven wrong, I remove all traces of my declaration. And therefore I am never wrong. All right. So we should start with the two books that we've covered previously, showing that we do have a nose for nominable works of some of some kind two of these books we've done episodes about already uh -huh. um, john scalzi's book red shirts was covered in detail in episode 101 of the incomparable titled insular nerdosphere where we talked about his uh very interesting kind of meta discussion of uh red shirts on a spaceship that re is remarkably like the uss enterprise which turns out is actually inside a TV show, and that's why the plots uh, that their lives are uh, revolving around make very little sense. Um, so we talked about this a little bit. Um, Glenn and Scott were on that show, 
Dan and Monty, uh, have you both read Red Shirts? I have. All right. So why don't you guys? Um, let's start with Monty. Tell me. Tell me what you thought of Red Shirts. Um, I liked the middle part. At the beginning, I thought the, the middle part where they realized they were in a TV show and went to Earth where the TV show was being produced. That part? yes, the, at the beginning when they were purposely running into all the tropes, I thought was kind of obvious and boring. And there's about eighty pages after the end of the book when Scalzi wanders off into some weird writing exercises that I didn't care for at all. The codas, yeah. The codas, I felt, were completely extraneous to the actual story and bugged me, uh, bugged me a lot because I thought I was finally done. I kind of liked one of those codas, as I recall, just because I felt like there was some humanity in it that maybe was missing from all of the <laughs> winking and nudging that had been going on before it. That, that, uh, but it was a, an abrupt tonal shift to suddenly have it be like, hey, remember those funny jokes about those guys who died? They were real people, and people mourned their passing. It's like, oh, jeez. <laughs> but I'd finally gotten to the point where I was accepting the winking and nudging. I was like, all right, I'm going to enjoy this book on its own self-referential level. Right. Fine. It's too late to make it try to make me start caring about these guys. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Dan, I know you had this book on your bookshelf for a long time. I did, and I and I read it, uh, and I enjoyed it. Uh, I'm a fan of Scalzi's work in yeah. general. This this seems to me to fall pretty clearly into the he he's got a couple different veins of writing. I feel like um, so I really like his stuff in the in the Old Man's War universe, and we talked about the Human Division also on a recent podcast. Um, this strikes me very much of reminding me of uh, the Android's Dream, which is another book he wrote. His wackier um, novels. Yeah, he he <laughs> writes. He's not necessarily quite as successful as someone like uh, Douglas Adams or Terry Pratchett when it comes to just sort of being like, I'm just going to do total surrealist humor. Um, he does something that's, I think, a little bit, it's still kind of grounded in a plot, um, and it still has like a dramatic side to it. Um, but it's also kind of, if you sort of take a step back, wholly ridiculous at the same time. Um, and, and I find it entertaining, um, especially as someone who's, you know, watched a lot of Star Trek in the past, it's definitely hits those chords and the metafictional stuff is, is I didn't dislike it, uh, to the extent that Monty did. I thought it was fine. I mean, it's also, I find, you know, we're talking about it now and I read it, uh, two or three months ago and I found that I've forgotten most of it. <laughs> like, I remember what, I remember the sort of general outlines of it, but if you ask me, like I had to look up the, you know, Wikipedia page to remember the names of the characters. <laughs> Which I guess makes sense because they're red shirts. <laughs> yeah, it's a super light book. Yeah, uh, there were characters in that book. They were kind of in. Well, I remember the the wife of the guy who died. Oh yeah, well, right, Dakota. right, Dakota. Yeah. Maybe that's just because it was at the end, or maybe it's because I again I I cared about the. It, it suddenly was sad that these guys were all dying. Right. So I mean, I you know I give it a thumbs up, but it, it, I don't know if I would call it my my favorite you know sci-fi novel or the best sci-fi novel of the year. Yeah, I thought it was a pleasant diversion, kind of a fun read. I would not have guessed that it would be nominated for anything, except that John Scalzi has a lot of people on the internet who like him a lot. I think I think you've uh, hit on something there, Monty. <laughs> that's a, that's a theme I think tonight, possibly. <laughs> Possibly. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, Awards are a popularity contest? Is that what you're suggesting? Turns out it's true. Especially the Hugo, well, not especially, but the Hugos by design, right? You can, they're voted for by fans. So 
uh, obviously, if if you who have sixty five dollars or more, right? So you, <laughs> that does if, that if does you, remove a lot of people from the running. Yeah, my core audience only has like twenty bucks. That's why I win very few awards. <laughs> there were only uh, there were only one thousand one hundred thirteen ballots cast also for the best novel this year. So it's that a very not small a sample size. Yeah, it's not a lot. It's true. You feel I feel like you should be able to mobilize. Pretty heavily, well, if, you, if you really want to. I think they did. And there are how many people really read? Again, we're getting a little meta already, but how many people really read enough novels to be able to pick five and say exactly. these are the best yeah. five in the yeah. genre? And the answer is Scott is the only person I know who <laughs> I could say might be able to do that. Might be able to do that. Yeah, unless you're a professional reviewer working for some publication. Yeah, exactly. Instead, what happens committed. is you're a fan and you read and you eight books. Exactly. And and six of them were by people you're a fan of anyway, and you nominate them. And Red Shirts was a very high-profile book, high enough for us to put it on our list and do an episode about it. And yeah, I think you read I think you read one book because you're a fan of someone on this list, and you nominate it also, and that's how it gets on too. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a part of it. This is this is part of the. I mean, this is with every awards. It's not just the Hugo Awards. The, the Oscars are like this. I mean, there there are lots of things like that where you you people who are more visible are going to have a better chance of being known. Doesn't mean doesn't guarantee it. If Red Shirts had been a disappointment for Scalzi's fan base, it wouldn't have gotten nominated. But he has a fan base, and That's they right. liked it, and they nominated it. it was the power law curve in action, and the Will Wheaton audiobook I know was very popular with people. So I, I think that that it, it channels into the insular nerdosphere, like we talked about in episode hundred and one, where there's this whole <laughs> culture of people who are pals <laughs> with each other and promote each other's stuff, and and that's powerful. That that that's a powerful uh, marketing tool. It's true, and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that, and there's nothing wrong with the as long as you come into the Hugos knowing that. And, and you're right. reading these books, that's fine. When exactly. I first started doing this, I didn't really uh, understand how the Hugos worked. So I just assumed that the, they were, you know, this is the best book of the year in science fiction and fantasy based on some kind of, you know, laws of the universe. Right. Uh, and so when I, <laughs> I read... It's, they crunch the numbers. Exactly. They these. put it in the old Hugotron 5000 and out pops the best book. I believe they have the frozen brain of Hugo Gernsback who actually, <laughs> then they ask. He's not dead. He's not dead. That's a lie. I, I mean, there are ways to run uh, award contests in which you are... It's not that you're requiring everyone to watch or read everything. And even the Academy Awards, I know those are also, of course, they're popularity contests. But there's this issue of if you are in an industry and you're part of it and you read and observe and you're, you know, you're enmeshed in the media, then you may have a better sense of picking which the best one is or the best. Then you, know, you get the nebulous. Whatever. Then you get the nebulous. Yeah. Yeah. We're definitely the best fan podcast by us. Specifically, <laughs> oh, that's been proven by science. I mean, I'm pretty confident. I'm pretty comfortable yes, saying the that. Parsec awards are completely valid, by the way. I just that's want right. to yeah, point that out. Award, in every way, those impeachable. Every that's choice right. is well, made, and we know it because of one of the facets of science is that your results be repeatable. And we won the award for best fan <laughs> podcast, uh, fan sla- news slash something general podcast. Oh, that was that just rolled right off your tongue there, Jason. Oh, uh, it meant so much to us. <laughs> Suffice it to say the category included a slash and parentheses, but we won that and we were nominated again this year, which again scientifically proves that they know what they're doing and right. therefore proves that we are great. Incidentally, don't vote for us in a podcast about science. Because we, we don't know anything about that. <laughs> we would lose that. 
of all of the many, many, many awards I've won, this is the only one. Yes. Um, so anyway, red shirts. You know, I, I, I am agreeing with you guys. I think it was fine and kind of funny. And as a Star Trek fan, I liked a lot of those illusions, and I liked the idea that they were, you know, that Scalzi is playing with that. You expect it to be the single joke book, and it's got some more twists up its sleeve. Like Monty said, that leads to that interesting middle where they're dealing with a writer on the TV show, and it becomes this thing about writers kind of freezing up when they realize these decisions they're making blithely for drama are affecting real people in a parallel universe somewhere. And uh, you know, one of the codas I thought was was nice, although a, a, an ab- abrupt tonal shift. So yeah, I I would not read this book and say, oh man, this this better be on that Hugo list. But I, I didn't hate it. I liked it. I thought it was fine. I th- I just thought it was kind of light and funny and breezy and not anything that I thought this is a meaningful book that I'm going to be remembering ten years from now. I agree with you, Jason, Thanks. completely. Oh, well, the feedback episode, people will be very angry at that. But. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> I, I agree as well. Though the only thing I disagree with is after I read it, I thought, well, this is getting nominated for a Hugo. Oh, yeah, but uh, because of the <laughs> yeah. politics, yeah. not because right. of the work, yeah. right? Yeah. Kind of. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it hits all the all the right notes. Let's move on and uh, mention the other book that we covered in a previous episode. I looked these up so I can refer all of our Previously. listeners to them. Episode 117 titled Intergalactic FedEx, which was about <laughs> Lois McMaster Bujold's latest uh, installment in the Vorkosigan saga, which we like, and we've done, uh, we did a, a whole podcast about the earlier books in the series, episode 24, way on, way back in 24, called My Word is Vorkosigan. And these are really fun books. And this was the latest, and it's a little different because it's not about Miles or Miles' parents. It's about his cousin Ivan. And... Um, as we said at the, at the time, back in December, um, and that was a podcast with Dan and Scott and Ren on it, um, I, this is, I thought this was one of the best for Kosigan books in quite a while and was, again, like Red Shirts, it was kind of light and funny, but I liked it. I, I, I thought it was better than her last two or three. Um, again, I'm not sure I, I would say it has the weight or meaning or anything to be a nominee, but every Vorkosigan novel ever seems to have been nominated for a Hugo Award. So, okay, we'll do that again. Um, Glenn and Monty, you weren't on that episode. Did you guys read it? Yes. I've never made it through a Vorkosigan novel, so okay. I didn't try this So you time. didn't try. All right, fair enough. So, Glenn, tell us your tell us your thoughts about it. Well, I've never read any of them, although I've heard you guys uh, talk about them. There's something a little daunting about when someone's created this world and this massive set of novels. You're like, if I go down that, you know, that path, there's a lot to read, which is great. But it's also, it seems sort of daunting to figure out where you start. You're describing and, my 2010, Glenn, oh, when I read, where I read yes. 10 of these in a oh row. My God. Well, there's a diagram in Captain Four Patrol's Alliance. It's like, here's how the books relate. And I'm like, oh my God. God, this is like worse than Tolkien. <laughs> any um, any book with a diagram, that's yeah, a problem. Tell you. But but so with no background at all, I barely even know what the universe is about. Picked it up and I, I thought it was uh lightweight but enjoyable. But I I could also tell I thought uh Bujold is a terrific writer. She tells a good story, she paints um characters in sort of broad strokes that are okay, and sometimes she goes in and then does the detail work to refine them a bit. But this was sort of a like a silly Slightly buffoonish story where everybody's kind of happy in the end, more or less. Is only you know, so I, I thought it was I thought it was enjoyable. Did not for me have the heft of what I would expect from a Hugo Award nominated novel. But I haven't read the other novels that were not nominated this year. I've only read the ones that were. I'm kind of light on the sci-fi side uh, in the last year or last few years. 
you know, children. And uh, so didn't, you know, I wouldn't, you know, this isn't a dune, right? I mean, this isn't something of that nature. And it's not like a hitchhiker's guide either. And you don't get those every year, I realize. But this seemed like with red shirts, pretty lightweight to be put in this category alongside books like that that have been nominated in the past. I just don't know if this year was a weaker or stronger year than usual and we're seeing weaker titles nominated. Yeah, I, it's uh, she gets nominated every time she's got a book. And she's won several times. So it definitely is one of those things where it's almost – it would be shocking if a, if a Bouchel book didn't get nominated. Cryoburn, which I think is in almost every way – uh, an inferior, except for maybe the last five pages, an inferior book to Kaplan Vor Patrols Alliance. You know, it got nominated, and this is a. This, I think this is a much better book. So what, that's what I would say about it is is by Bujold's standards, I think this is a this is the best uh, uh, for book she's written in years. Her other stuff is more the the main uh, novels are more serious, right? Like lots is like mur- they murder and mayhem. Very, very. Some of them are very adventure, and some of them are are more uh, yes. comedy of manners. Like oh yeah, because they seem to keep referring to genocides all over the place. It's like <laughs> well, oh, they're funny genocides. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. I mean, there's there's war novels, there's murder mysteries. It kind of runs all the the genre like uh, sort of across a bunch of genres and a planet of clowns. Re- okay, killed. I'll tell you this: having read this book, I'm like I'm actually uh, highly inclined to seek out her other novels because it's clear she writes, and I'll get some advice about which ones. Uh, to go through, but um, but it was so that in that sense it was a a good uh, good thing to read. I'd say the short the sh- short version for me is that they, uh, this series starts with uh, two books that uh, were published I think many years apart, but most a lot a lot of them were written together. Uh, generally published as an omnibus called Cordelia's Honor, but it's actually two books. It's Shards of Honor and Barriar, which are about Miles Vorkosigan's parents meeting. Um, and I think I think the best thing to do is just to start with those two books. I, that's what I did, and I thought they were great. And then you can get into the Miles books as well after that. So I read them chronologically by continuity instead of by publishing date, and that's definitely where the chart read, comes in. Definitely read them by continuity. Yes, but having, I enjoyed having them read them. <laughs> I enjoyed. Well, I mean, a couple of the later ones are not not so great. Di- diplomatic immunity is to me the weakest in the entire series. From the sort of main novels perspective, yeah, but but it, it's a um, good series. And, but you'll enjoy and, it all. And it's, it's all good, and it's fun. It's not one of those things. Also, where you get to the end of a book and think that you've been shortchanged, and uh, there you have to buy the next book to get the rest of the story. It's not like that. It's it's they're all self-contained. Plus, there is kind of continuity that runs through them. So I do recommend them. She's a good writer. How is Captain Vorpetrol's full text of the Treaty Alliance uh, title, though? Is that good, or should I skip that one? I'd pass on that on all, right. all all of that material. Yeah, that's not so good. Captain Captain Vor accounting. Well, then, before we move on to the three that we haven't uh, we haven't talked about yet, I'd like to talk for a moment about our sponsor. <gasps> what? It's that time, and strangely, our sponsor is incredibly relevant to this episode because our sponsor yes. is Audible dot com. The Ooh. leading provider of audiobooks, the best place to find audiobooks online. Uh, you can sign up, uh, and you get a uh, you get a free month, which means you get a free book. You go to audiblepodcast.com slash incomparable. That simple. Audiblepodcast.com slash incomparable to learn more. I was looking. I believe every Hugo nominated book that we're going to be talking about is on Audible. Of course, like I was saying with the Nerdosphere. John Scalzi's book, Red Shirts, read by Will Wheaton. Now, Jason, I'm going to be going on a five-hour road trip this weekend. Interesting. Do you recommend I get an audiobook? Well, it depends. Do you enjoy books and and life? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yes on one, a bit on the other. Okay. Do you enjoy words and the sound of words in your ears as you drive? That's the Whoa. best place I like sound. Of, the sound of words. Sound is in your ears? <laughs> yes. That's good. All right. Well, then I do recommend it. Now, I wouldn't recommend that you listen to one of these books that you've already read, because that, unless you really enjoyed it. But uh, for fans of Will Wheaton, from TV's Wesley Crusher, um, he, he read Red Shirts. Uh, Captain Four Patrols Alliance, which we we just talked about, that that's available unabridged. Is the audiobook just Will Wheaton reading silently to himself the book? <laughs> you occasionally hear him go, yeah. "Ha!" Produ- produced by John Cage. That's the that's accompanying video, video uh, version. Uh, occasionally uh, he chuckles. There's a uh, uh, coming up. We're going to be talking about some other books. They are available. Mira Grant's Blackout, for example, you can listen to it. It as we're going to get to in a moment. Blackout has two narrators and so the book unabridged again oh. has two readers so oh, you can it's just you, a series oh. of clicks and whistles you can get that, that shifting <laughs> perspective uh thrown to the crescent moon they're they're all they're all up there on audible.com and we thank them for being a sponsor um and you can try it out so this is the leading provider of audiobooks on the internet um you can sign up and try try it out for free to start and get a book and give it a listen and uh, they're very nice people who have a huge catalog of audiobooks online. Lots of great stuff. Every book, practically, that we've talked about in the history of the podcast has a usually unabridged version on Audible. So, again, to sign up and, and try your free trial and learn more about how you can sign up for Audible, this is the magic URL that makes us happy and makes them happy for sponsoring us. It's audiblepodcast.com slash Incomparable, and thanks again to Audible for sponsoring the Incomparable. Woohoo! What what should we do next? Um, let's talk about let's talk oh, about Throne of the so Crescent many choices. Moon. Maybe we let's, should quit while we're ahead. <laughs> let's talk about Throne of the Crescent Moon by Saladin Ahmed. Let's talk about that. Yeah. This uh, I I thought this was pretty good. So let's let let's who who Scott? Do you remember anything about this book? <laughs> <laughs> I remember that it struck me as. A cool D and D campaign that someone wrote down. Uh-huh. Uh, oh wow! Um, and I thought it was entertaining, but I didn't really think I, I was surprised that it was nominated for anything. I was not disappointed that it was nominated, but I was surprised. So this, I thought this was a fun book. Let, let me explain a little bit about what this is. It's a, it's a fantasy adventure. Um, it's very Arabian Nights. This is in a kind of unnamed place that uh, is is either. In the Middle East, or it's in a Middle Eastern analog. Um, there are some references to places that we might assume to be Europe and Asia, um, and there's a there's a guy who's basically the fighter of um, of supernatural things. He's sort of a uh, and he's old and grizzled, but he's he's. I couldn't decide whether he was sort of a uh, an Arabian Nights Fox Mulder or. An Arabian Nights Buffy the Vampire Slayer, because actually this felt to me like a fairly standard supernatural or or the Supernatural Brothers. Honestly, Dan, to me it seemed like the plot wasn't the the it, it was something I'd seen before. It was almost like the trappings were the thing that was interest most interesting about it that it was in this Middle Eastern setting and it was less familiar to me than any episode of Buffy or Supernatural. It was like they took a regular fantasy novel, which is in kind of a vaguely Western European medieval. Right venue, changed it to a vaguely Middle Eastern venue. Yes, and because we haven't seen that a million times, it feels fresh and new. For sure, I liked the character. I mean, I, the main character. Mm-hmm. I, I thought particularly 
again, if you're comparing it to a lot of the typical fantasy novels that we read, you don't have your young strapping hero, right? You had your old, slightly decrepit hero. Yeah, but it is master and apprentice, right? And he's the... Um, I've seen enough of this crap. I'm two months from retirement. I've got one last collar to make, and then I get. And then he's got his young, idealistic sidekick. I I certainly saw it through a D and D prism, like the old guy. Well, he's the cleric, and he's got a paladin who's Mm -hmm. holier than thou. And then they meet the fighter lady. Wow, it's funny because I I happen to know that uh the that Saladin ran a D and D campaign with um uh, an acquaintance of mine, Mike Cole. So yeah. I know he I know he plays D and D, or at least has run D and D. We cracked the code. There My you go. God. I mean, who didn't start out writing writing novelized versions of their D and D campaigns? Not me. <laughs> and then the party argued for three hours over who would pay for the pizza. Eggglass vision was yeah. dark. He reached so out dark. for the sand. Some great stuff in it, but it was um, it was a novella or maybe a short story that just kept going on and on and on. The payoff was sort of terrible and they he'd set up he kind of weaved together a bunch of different things we're supposed to enjoy the sort of coincidence and whatever and then it's like oh you know like if it had been if we if it had been nominated for best novella or short story this year we probably would have talked about it relatively positively as something that was fresh that that presented us a new viewpoint wasn't rehashing a lot of the common fantasy myths brought in you know some interesting unique elements and a few strong characters but as a novel it just it was too thin I you know it's interesting. I read while taking a break from one of the other Hugo nominees. I read uh, <laughs> some, of, some of his uh, some of his short stories, including one that is set in this world with the same characters. It's about the first meeting of the master and the apprentice, oh. um, and I enjoyed that. I mean, it was a pretty quick read. It was a nice short story, but it was um, I I think I think there's some meat on those characters and the interactions. And yes, while they we may have seen some of that type of stuff before, I still found it intriguing and entertaining and, and let me tell you compared to some of the other books <laughs> we're not oh, made, oh yeah I, oh yeah i pay i page through this one pretty pretty uh at a pretty good clip i thought it was kind of a mistake to have a cool robin hood type character and then not spend a lot of time with him because he's more fun than the stuck up kid well also the strongest element in it is that really horrible thing where the spoiler alert goes off before we even start the episode right the spoiler harm is well <laughs> Uh, the the creepy thing at the beginning of a lot of the chapters where that guy is being, you know, essentially oh, yeah. killed alive and then boiled and his head removed. Oh, yeah. You're like, that is very strong and horrifying and compelling. And he keeps the suspense up. And then the actual thing is, oh, he's like a sergeant and all his men will respond to him. It's like, really? That's the whole payoff of that yeah. whole thing? Oh, that was actually one of the most disappointing things of the novel. The whole climax – I really liked – I mean, I I say that it's got these trappings and otherwise it seems pretty standard. I like the trappings. I like that the the prince kind of comes and goes and he's – He's too powerful a character almost. It's not his story, but he you know that he's gonna cause he's gonna cause some trouble. But at the end, you know, you do end up in this situation where they're in this palace and it's it's like uh it's almost like a runaround or a or a or a farce where there are various rooms and there are various doors that open and don't <laughs> open and stuff. And and I, I had trouble with the geography and I, I I just I thought really it all ends up to this that they run back and forth in a bunch of rooms and there's a throne and I mean it's in the title there's some buttons or whatever and it just it seemed it did seem kind of abrupt and that the fact that although we've been leading up to the moment where the guy takes over all the soldiers and that was kind of cool it was a whole long way to go for that one little thing 
that that, that, that happens. So so yeah, I liked. I, I mean, I, I can say that it's bog standard, and then it's got this interesting trappings, you know. But the trappings were the best part. I like that, and I did like the main character. I like that he's grizzled and that he's world weary, but he just has to do this, and he's you know he's had enough of this crap, but it doesn't matter. He's still got to do it because nobody else will. I liked all of that about it. And don't forget the madam with the heart of gold. Oh yeah, I mean that. Uh, that was I know, neat, but it was surprising. Again, not Detail. not not that different from a character you might see in George R. R. Martin, except for the the setting. But the fact that she's got this that this guy is this this pious guy, and he you sort know, of sort of yeah, <laughs> I know it was again. I, I I thought the characters were interesting. It was just more that I was realizing as I read it that it was not anything I hadn't read or seen on TV before, except that the setting was was, you know, a different culture than we're used to. But I didn't dislike it. I, I, I uh, Spoiler alert, I think I liked it the best of the five. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, actually, it could have been a Doctor Who episode with some small changes, too. <laughs> I did like the shifting POVs in the finale, where they kind of let the action move you from one character to another, where this character is out of the action, so now another character has to step in, and he takes over the narrative. Nice. Although having said that, I'm getting pretty sick of novels that insist on multiple point of view characters. Right. Um, I want to mention there's two other novels. If people like this kind of approach, there's two other ones that I really like that are um, now a number of years old. One is Shiva 3000, which is a sort of fantasy sci-fi novel that takes place in a universe in which all of India's gods um, may or may not exist. It's a really great read from, I think, 1999. I've read it multiple times. And the other one is, I cannot recall the title of it. Maybe we can put it in the show notes. If I can find it, I have it on my shelf somewhere. It's a book in which uh, Greek science is actually the way the world is run. So the universe is a set of interlocking spheres. There's the music of the spheres. If you throw something through space, it throws in a straight line. And then when the velocity is gone, it plummets to the ground. And it's a beautiful, intricate story told in that in which different cultures combine and their different worldviews are actually all legitimate in this universe and um it's a really beautifully told story so uh there are ways to tell that kind of uh, different point of view in which magic or some kind of combination of science and magic are different and you can do it i think really uh rewardingly um so am i right in oh, they, oh no 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 so scott and i read blackout as we've read the other two books in the series the newsflash series by mira grant which is a pseudonym for urban fantasy writer Seanan McGuire. But Monty, you read it too, didn't you? Yes, I read Blackout and I had not read either of the other two. And Glenn, did you read it too? I uh, was actually making my way across the desolate plains of the novel and, and, and <laughs> tweeted about it, I think, and I was given permission by you and Scott to stop. Oh, I see. So I read about, I read <laughs> about a third... after you shamed me into reading it. Oh, I know, that's, that's how I work. That's how I roll. <laughs> I read about a third of it. And was despairing and was told I, I was off the hook. So I, I stopped at yeah. that point with grateful uh, admiration. I didn't want to be the one responsible for that. <laughs> yes, I couldn't live with that. All right. So we read – so famously we read – two years ago we read Feed. <laughs> and our, our short review of Feed was Don't Read Feed because it wasn't very good. It wasn't very well written. And this is a series set it's, – it's in the future after a zombie apocalypse, but not a complete apocalypse. It's sort of a zombie inconvenience more than anything else. <laughs> uh, electricity is still functioning. There seems to be some yeah, there's food society. supply somehow. It's just that there are lots of dead zones and a lot of people died. And now nobody can have big pets because I think the episode when we talked about feed was called Zombie Marmaduke because if you get a big enough dog, it can turn into a zombie, but small dogs don't turn into zombies. And there are bloggers – 
and bloggers tell the news like it is, man, and they post things on yeah. the internet and they fight the power, man. And are but made... you have to be licensed to be a blogger. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, you got to pass well, some tests. It just makes sense. But, but, yeah. That doesn't. That's not how <laughs> blogging works. There's an unfiltered, unfettered internet that's available all the time, everywhere, with no maintenance required for cellular towers or anything, too. It's pretty incredible. That's there, yes. There's also ultra luxury hotels available. Really? There are. I'm moving there. True. Forget the zombies. Yeah. Well, that's you have to. Well, the books do that basically. So. You have to. You have to be there. So in the first book, the main character Georgia Mason uh, dies toward the end. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Ooh, Come on, people! Wah, Why are you wah, listening? Wah. Uh, well, that, that's not not as much of a spoiler as we thought at the time, though. Um, the first line of Blackout is her dying. Yeah, so so <laughs> she dies, and I thought that was the best thing in the book because it was at least a bold move by the the writer to do that. But we didn't like Scott and I didn't like the book, and then we didn't like the sequel, uh, Deadline, in which is told no. by her brother, and she and her brother have the, they're adopted and they have this creepy relationship. Um, which is never really kind of, I think, I think outwardly stated is, is more than brother, sister. They are adopted after all. It's not entirely incest, but, um, it's creepy. It's creepy. So, so in, so in, in, at the end of deadline, we discover that there's a clone of Georgia who has come back to life. What? Uh, and, and, and I remember very clearly Scott saying, don't talk so much about her dying in that book because you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> um, so, so in Blackout, we have an alternating uh, set of narrators. We've got Sean and Georgia, clone Georgia, as as she figures out where she is and why she's a clone. And he drives around because there's conspiracies. There's stuff to do, man. Something about mosquitoes. There's mosquitoes. Nobody really seems mosquitoes. to care that much. And it doesn't people... make any sense. <laughs> it, it yeah, really doesn't. They like they have all this great, incredible security at the place where the mad scientist is doing the research. Except zombies just get in. They get in because they oh they had them in there. They didn't do good protocol. And it's so like cockroaches. They just everybody's covered with everyone's covered with zombies. Oh, and don't forget, don't forget, he can't be infected with the zombie virus for sorry, he can be, but he only gets a little sick. He doesn't actually become a zombie. Yeah, so, knows suddenly, he, uh, Sean Mason is is uh, in, immune immune to zombieism. Well, he has to take antibiotics. It makes him sick, but it does not make him a zombie. And that doesn't even that really does. play into the plot where... No. You'd think it would. It's just a thing. No. It's like a vampire hunter who can't become a vampire because he already is part vampire. Now you, Glenn, Glenn and Monty, you guys didn't read the other two books, right? Right. No. Okay. You, you made me not. Yeah. You told me not to. Yeah. <laughs> you made me so not. This will shock you. I thought this was by far the best of the three. Oh, God. Yes, I agree. <laughs> here, I want to take one sidebar <laughs> moment here, which is I. Uh, by far. Uh, Shannon, is that how you pronounce it? Shannon, I think. Shannon. Shannon. I liked one of the short stories she wrote that was nominated uh, for Hugo. The Selkie and one? She's, yes, yep. I like that one very much. I read it multiple times. Um, she's extremely funny and kind, and I didn't even know it was her when I first started following her on Twitter recently when the issue came up about sort of feminist issues. She's really interesting, funny person. I sort of feel terrible because she, this, this stuff is terribly, terribly written. <laughs> it's very popular, so there's no reason yeah. she will change what she's doing, and she's ridiculously productive. She's the Glenn Fleischman of <laughs> science fiction and fantasy writing. Well, when you throw quality out the window. Did you did you just Glenn yourself? Oh my God. I did. Yes. I did. That's called branding right there. That is <laughs> that is insulting you. You insulted yourself. Glenn. I mean in terms of Take quantity back, quantity relentlessness and uh, She's the Lex Friedman of Glenn oh, Fleischman. How about that? Lex Friedman Ooh, Glenn Fleischman. That. 
Now, I'm sure she's a lovely, lovely person. But this is but... just terrible. It's, <laughs> it's terrible. It's not, no and I feel like it almost is fan fiction. Not fan fiction. It's, it's something that desperately needed an editor and shouldn't have been printed. I almost wonder if this was something she wrote earlier in her life and brought it out of the, uh, out of the trunk. Oh, and, trunk novel. And and put it under a pseudonym, and then and and it sold well. I don't know. That's just pure speculation on my part. So so here's the thing. I I've been I, we we Scott and I kind of were famously among listeners to this uh, show about <laughs> how we beat feed to death, and it's very rare that we find something and we we kick it to death. It does happen occasionally. Man of Steel, The Avengers with Andy, and and uh, some other things that we've done where we've kicked them to death. Um, but uh, I have to say, I think I maybe have figured out why I don't like these books. I mean, yes, the plots don't make sense. Um, Characters aren't good. I had no idea why they did what they did at the end of the, the book. Writing is not very good. The science is bad. There's a moment. I, I mentioned the weird relationship. By the way, I, and I, I think I even maybe I should bring up my Kindle notes about this. Um, there's a moment in this book where... I think she seriously expects us to be shocked when we discover that oh, Sean yeah. and Georgia have a sexual relationship that they've oh. had their entire life. Where I remember, my, I remember Scott and I talking when we were in the midst of reading feed about how <laughs> creepy the twins were but, because they yes. were totally all pawing each other and all over each other, the twins or, or, or brother and sister. And I thought, does she? Is this really? Really, a revelation of any kind? Is this shocking. Yeah, it's clear from reading the book. I mean, I just read this book and I thought that was what was going on. It was creepy. Yeah. I kept forgetting whether they were brother and sister or husband and wife. Yeah, yeah. I had to go back and check. <laughs> yeah, they're adopted yeah. separately, not, so they're not genetically related. So it's not technically incest, like I said. Yeah. That's our episode title. That's the next book in the series. <laughs> not technically incest. Not technically incest by Mira Grant. Either I misunderstand it, misunderstand this, or or she has an opinion of her readers that is vastly different from my opinion as a reader. Because <laughs> I would like to not I, believe well, that. Well, if, if you read these books, you're not that discerning as a person, <laughs> unless you're forced to read them. And I, you know, I it, they are, you know, they're mindless reads, right? And if yeah. people like zombies, hey, you know, go ahead, read it. Your it's your time. Um, but they're not very good. <laughs> if you like zombies, I say don't read these books. There's not if you like, true. if you like bloggers and you like government conspiracies, man, who are going <laughs> to be un- badly run covered ones. by the bloggers, then read these books because they're, they're, the zombie content is really low. What is? Why is the CDC doing all this? I don't. Okay, so the villain of the piece is the Centers for Disease Control. They are an I, evil, evil organization that is evil. plotting to. Hoard all knowledge about the zombie, the Kellis Amberley virus, which causes zombieism. Because reasons. Because evil reasons. Because evil, all right. Evil reasons, yes. Uh, and so the heroes are some other three-letter acronym government organization that's fighting oh, yeah, the CDC. The, so, are, yeah. so bizarre. The Oversight Department of the Division of Government Ecological Oversight. There's a ridiculous climax in the White House that could ne- uh, never conceivably happen in the White House where the president is running well, around. My, and My biggest problem, I mean, uh, there are a lot of problems with this book, right? <laughs> yes. But my <laughs> biggest problem is, so there's this whole point where they clone, uh, what's her face, Georgia, Georgia right? Georgia, yep. And it's a very important plot point, and you think, okay, well, they've done this for a reason, and it should be a good reason, Right. And it is an incredibly stupid reason. <laughs> they spend millions and millions and millions of dollars to clone her. 
because the vice president, the president is being held captive by the CDC, and the vice president <laughs> thinks the only way that he can get them out is by cloning this dead blogger, so the dead blogger can tell the public, and the CDC, because the de- the the public will not trust anyone else. And then the CDC will be forced to release the president. You missed something, though, Scott. You missed something, though, because the, the, the CDC's evil plan is to perfect the clone. So she's right. exactly Georgia. And then once they perfect then, her, they'll back it off a little bit so that she's not perfect. They're going to use the perfect Georgia clone to sell the concept of clones to millionaires or something. <laughs> or something. I did, right. Yeah, it's yeah. There's 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 a profit <laughs> motive. But then, but then at the climax, at the climax... They're like, okay, we're, we have to save the president, so let me make a phone call. And they're like, okay, the president's saved. What? Why did you bother cloning Georgia? <laughs> so I haven't even said the thing, the thing that I think rubs me, rubs me wrong about these books more than all of this. Because the reason I said this was the best is I, I, feel, like her, I feel like her individual like um, action uh, set pieces were better in this than the first two. I thought that this was... This was a much more capably written book in that way, um, but what um, what really drives me crazy, and it's been throughout these books, is there's a lot of it's just bad style. I think is the thing that offends me the most is with all that we've said about the ridiculous plot, it's not pleasant to read. I could forgive a lot if it was enjoyable to actually read the words, but there's so much repetition, so much. An insistence on details Jason, that don't Jason, matter. Need a, can I just get you a cup, of, a, a, a can of a Coke, Coke right now? I yeah, think that would help I would really down. enjoy opening a Coke every time. Okay, every I'm going to go pages. get you a Coke, and I think that'll and help. I, I think Coke might be sweet. While you're doing that, Glenn, I am going to jam my thumb on a, a zombie <laughs> virus detector reader. And what happens, you see, when that happens is needles bite into my thumb, and then the blood comes out. And then I wait as the light goes from red to green to red to green to red to green to red to green. Green. Oh, green. Whew. I'm safe. Jason, I got to stick my thumb in here before I get that can of Coke for you. So I'm going to have to do that first before right. I can listen to Well, then, ah, so you jam yeah, your thumb in there and oh, the needles no. go. See, because this is what it's, happens oh, in the book green. is, that, is that, that this information is repeated uh, every few pages across all three books. The same and thing. Pokes something with a stick. And it's in nonsense places. You don't need a zombie scanner in all the places. Yeah, so there's details it. that are unnecessary. And, and and then things that don't make sense and you know again that's it is stylistically I think this these books are a failure plus the plots are nonsensical so I don't know she has a following she has a huge fan base Shauna McGuire got nominated for like seven Hugos or something this year she's in the podcast category she's in the short story category she's in the novella she's category she's in the novel category she's all she's I think she was in some other category she's all over the place and that's great because she's got fans who love her I Hope they love her for some of her other works that are presumably better than these, because all three of these books are awful, and I was generous with this one on Goodreads, and I gave it two stars instead of one. It's so funny, because people would usually accuse us, you know, when you start getting this vociferous about something, people are like, well, you have an animus against this author or something. It's like, no, I've got, none of us have anything against her. I know nothing about her. It's, it, right. This <laughs> is all about, these are really terrible. I mean, I know th- this is a really terrible thing I read. It was so bad. I could not, I did not want to finish it. And when told I didn't have to, I did not. <laughs> I have two really specific things I did not like about this book. Lay them on us. <laughs> One is, everybody is so quippy. At oh, every yeah. opportunity. It's like a Joss Whedon fanfic kind of thing. Where it's it like, was, especially because she keeps talking about somebody named Buffy, who I never saw because she's not in this book. Yes, she, she dies in the first book. She's, <laughs> she a, does. she's, she's a, a brilliant hacker expert. who, as Scott pointed out, since Scott is an IT professional, uh, 
encrypted the most valuable database on earth with like a four letter password yeah, yeah. like her name Buffy. she's really good here are a couple of things people actually say in this book at incredibly tense moments could we go with a slightly less outworthy doomsday weapon next time Okay, that's it. No more Mr. Nice, heavily armed, really pissed off journalist. <laughs> Bex frowned, clearly half asleep. Bats? Yeah, you know, flap, flap, squeak, squeak, works for Dracula? <laughs> we come in peace, I called. More quietly, I added, for Bex's benefit. I have always wanted to say that. I think that's when they're taking the vice president hostage. You don't say that then. You can't be that quippy. Oh, all yeah. the time. And Maybe she's. Are. I have a theory. She's an incredibly good programmer, and she no, no, no. wrote software that this is one of the first drafts. Okay, so here's my explanation for these books: is is that, um, and I do have one. Um, it, it it's it reads to me like somebody who's pictured a a movie in their head. Mm-hmm. And is literally just writing down the dialogue and writing down the camera movements and writing down the, you know, what they're seeing on the screen. And so every time somebody sticks their finger in the reader, she has to explain what the finger thing is. And, and But that's how it feels to me. The dialogue especially is painful because there's so much of it and it's so rep- repetitious and pointless and and there's no sense... Uh, in the entire book of compression, she doesn't understand that if you have five characters and they need to go somewhere uh, that's four rooms away, that you don't need to describe them opening each door, stepping through each room, <laughs> what's in each room, opening the next door until they get to the next room. In these books, every single thing that could happen from one end to the other and every word that every character might say or think is detailed. And it's that's not... Good writing doesn't need to have that. Good writing, you just end up in the next room. And as the writer does shorthand to say, well, and when they got to that room, this is what happened that's important. And this book has no sense of importance uh, and not importance of scenes. They're all just... They're all just frames at 24 frames per second in the movie in the writer's head, as far as I can tell. A brilliant thing that Douglas Adams wrote in, I think, in the third or fourth Hitchhiker's Guidebook about where it said, you know, readers, you might have a question about the things I leave out. And he goes this thing like, for instance, if I were to tell you about Arthur's day, you know, Arthur gets up, he scratches one side, then he gets up, he does this whole detailed thing, and it's all a question of whether Arthur actually has sex with uh, with Fenchurch. But it's this very funny thing of like what it would be like for a writer to write all of the details excruciatingly of what actually happened. And I, I think that's what you're describing. Yeah. Here. Well, this is a whole book of that. Oh, my. <laughs> Trilogy. You, you, put, you put your finger on Trilogy, it. Trilogy, really, more than a book. Another thing I did not like. Oh, Monty, yes, more. I have two other specific things. Okay. Oh, One no. is, oh at the beginning of I was going to stop beating the horse, but please. No, I got here late. You horse. had three whole kill books to beat up on. I've just you, got this one. I, I made you read it. You should talk as long as you need to. Get it out. I'm listening. At the beginning of each chapter, there's other descriptions of what's happened. And that's weird because a lot of time it's by the same person who's the first person narrator of these things. Yes. But now they're going to give us excerpts from their blog. Their man. blog. Yeah. Their blog. Or their unpublished blog. Unpublished, oh, unpublished blogs. blogs. Yes. And they have their dates on drafts. Them. That's not a thing. These people aren't taking time to write this stuff down. That was what I wondered is when did they have time to write the unpublished blog entries during this adventure? Who has time to write unpublished blog entries? 
If it's a blog. If you wrote it, publish it. <laughs> Finally, there's this one sentence that really bothered me. It's uh, describing the fox, who, who's the ludicrously colorful, psychotic uh, character they run into, who's very Whedon-y. The sentence is, Oh, yes. As she clamped her hands over her ears, I saw that she was holding a nasty-looking a nasty looking sniper's pistol. First, I'm not sure what a sniper's pistol is. I think most snipers use rifles, rifles. but forget that. Yep. Yeah, She's clamping her hands over her ears while holding oh, a sniper's she... pistol. Yeah. Isn't she just going to knock herself out or something? We can only hope. She's crazy, Monty. She's crazy. She does crazy stuff like that because she's crazy. But she's supposed to be holding the pistol on them and said she's... All right. Yeah. All right. She's got three hands, clearly. So what we're saying is it's not good. Read it. It's not good. What? What? If if you're going to read it, listen to it on Audible. (laughs) Thank you. Two narrators. Read any two pages of it and you've got the whole thing. Yeah. There's lots of redundancy. There's lots of of redundancy in that. Lots. Redundancy. All right, let's move on. Uh, I've set, I've, I've saved for fifth. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's twenty three twelve, the winner of the Nebula Award for best science fiction novel True. of the year. This is twenty three twelve is set in the um, sometime in the early twenty three hundreds. The Trojan. Sure when. <laughs> um, sorry, I've been waiting like five weeks to make that joke. <laughs> And you amused yourself. It's, I did. So. It's sadly accurate too because it's not exactly set. Anyway. It's a uh, it's a grand tour kind of novel. It's it's got scenes on Mars and Mercury and Earth and in the outer planets and the moons of Jupiter and Saturn and in asteroids, and um, it tells it, this far future story. It tells of uh, there's a plot and there's also lots of detail of sort of the future of uh, of human society and culture. And I think as somebody who read the Red, Blue, Green, Mars trilogy, which I enjoyed quite a lot, actually, by Kim Stanley Robinson, um, it seems to maybe be set in the same universe. He sort of soft pedals the Mars stuff. Um, and that led me to believe that it probably is the same or at least similar universe to that. I don't know. Um and this is uh yeah this this is one lots lots o awards. So when I talked about this book with Glenn, Glenn said that he had started reading it and was so furious that he put it down, and, and we had to coax him into reading the rest of it, which I think he did. And Dan, yeah, like, Dan, like, you read like you read squirrel. most of this, right? Uh, I, I'm about 150 pages from the end. I'm a lo- waiting a long time to say something about this. Can I say something about this? No. When I started reading, so I'm a long time Kim Stanley Robinson. Fan. I even would refer to him as KSR, as his fans do. I read the Red, Green, Blue, Mars ones and thought some of the best science fiction since Dune, since the first Dune, not the sequels. Um, tremendous scope, tremendous scientific insight, great characters, the ability to create a universe, to deal with characters over the span of a century. I read read other novels and short stories he's re- written, uh, read nonfiction he's written. Looking forward to this. I bought this from Amazon in hardcover the moment it came out, pre-ordered it, picked it up and started reading it, and I thought I'd had a brain aneurysm. And in fact, I wrote an article for The Economist Spavage blog about how I sort of double-checked whether I'd actually had a stroke or a seizure because I started reading it and I thought, 
this is terrible. The writing is flat. The characters are uninspired. The science is bad. This can the, the, the there's instantaneous communication without an answer. There's all like I'm just and I I actually thought is something wrong with me because it can't be wrong with Kim Stanley Robinson. He's a genius. He's written all this great stuff. And in the end, of course, it's it's not me. It's it's him. And I think I overreacted a little, little bit. Because when I came back to it, what? just a little bit. That does not sound like you. That doesn't sound right. I know. If anything, no. you underreacted. But I came back to it, and my opinion is, is is it's still, I don't like it. And we can talk about it. We'll talk about it. But it's not as horrible as it seemed, because I had such high expectations from anything he would write, because he has never disappointed me in the past. And I thought this was another sprawling, wonderful installment in his work, and it is not. But I did finish the whole thing. This is great because I'm on the entirely opposite spectrum of Glenn in terms of going into this, which is that Mm. I read Red Mars maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago and found it dull. (laughs) Didn't read any of the other books in that series. Did not do not remember that book at all other than not liking it. Um, And I went into this and I also found this dull. (laughs) Um, There there are a couple things. Every once in a while, I mean, okay. It takes about 150 pages before you hit a plot. And that to me is the problem number one, <laughs> right? Like there's, 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 there are people like you sort of start out with this character who's died and the main character who is her right. granddaughter. Swan, yes. Swan, oh, Swan is supposed to take over her work. It's not clear what that work is. There are lots of other people involved. It's not really clear what they're doing either. And it takes about 150 pages before somebody tries to blow up a city on Mercury, her city, um, before I was like, okay, now we've finally gotten to the point of this story. Uh, at which point you we then spend like 200 <laughs> more wish. pages like dawdling around and talking things. Point is a strong word. <laughs> I want to read. I will read the thing. I'm reading this, and, and I, I agree that it's like, with, as Glenn said, it's flat. Except every once in a while, little stuff pokes through, and I'm amazed that it's like i start to get like you know maybe you like wipe away the dirt and you're like oh Mm -hmm. i can kind of see what he was going for and so i want to read the one line that made me laugh out loud a lot and it's in one of the lists chapters there there's these breaks breakouts where they have like lists or extracts from other pieces of work or whatever yeah there's a list where they have a list of all the different types of terrariums these artificial structures they've built um and here's all the different types of terrariums they had. And this was my favorite was the St. George, a social terrarium in which the men think they are living in a Mormon polygamy while the women <laughs> consider it a lesbian world with a small percentage of male lesbians. <laughs> that made me laugh. Long. That made me That's laugh. It, yep, and I was yep. like, wait, am I reading this book wrong? <laughs> because maybe this book is supposed <laughs> maybe, to be funny. Maybe and I have come stroke. across <laughs> I've come across a couple of things subsequently that, that were actually amusing or like, you know, made me chuckle a little bit. Wait, did John Scalzi write this book? Is this book an entire <laughs> metacritic? He wrote the interim but, material, maybe. But I can't quite, I mean, I don't really understand. <laughs> maybe I'm not very good at science fiction. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking back over time. So you also had a stroke. It's I'm a sorry little to tell you. bit perplexing. I was on the Boing Boing podcast, which I, I uh, thanks to Glenn, Presumably, the only reason they asked me is because Glenn recommended me <laughs> with um, a sci-fi writer, Ramez uh, Nam, who is a oh, yeah. who has written some really interesting stuff that maybe we'll talk about in a future podcast. He um, and he loved twenty three twelve, and I have to admit, I said I don't, uh, I don't. Okay, good for you. I, I, you know, you are a smart guy and a science fiction writer, but it just I, 
I have a hard time understanding the love for this. Scott, uh, you know, what what is your take on on twenty three twelve as you remember it? I know you've got the. It's probably been months since you read this book. <laughs> it has been a while, but I will say that uh, this is the book that I have voted for to win the Hugo. Oh, okay, because, conflict. Here we go. Yeah, it's true. But, I mean, I can understand how people could hate it. As I was reading it, I'm like, I really like this, but I understand why people don't like it at all. There's an unlikable character. For large portions of the book, you have no idea what's going on. Uh, it is rambling. Uh, there are weird chapters with just lists and fragments of texts. These are not things that make a book uh, all that likable. But for me, this combination really worked well because uh, there's this kind of this trope, right, that humanity, when you reach a certain level of technological advancement, people just get bored and there's nothing to do. And that's kind of what I, I thought was the kind of the, the swan, the main character, who is kind of awful. She's horrible, uh, horrible person. She's, she's not a nice person. But she's an interesting character she's, because she's not so, just not nice. She's also dumb and does lots of dumb things. She does some very dumb things. So she's bored, and so she says, "Hey, I know what I'll do. I'll inject this alien bacteria <laughs> into my system and see what happens." Right? And so the answer is, uh, bad things happen. Right? So she that although it also saves her, her life potentially too, though weird, by accident. Yeah. So we don't by know accident. what's happening, right? Uh, and then there's this other guy who likes her for some reason, and. But it, 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 or Frogman or whatever. I can't even remember his name. Warum. It begins with a W. What is it? Warum. Warum. I mean, Warum. I've read his name yes. a thousand he, times and I can't remember it. Yeah. He, he falls in love with her, but she is really incapable of love. So Indeed. she just kind of uses him and he like walks for like six months under the surface of Mercury to save her life. And she's kind of like, eh. Whatever. You could have walked a little faster. <laughs> yeah. That scene for me was reflective of I thought the entire novel felt yes, the like novel. that. Yeah. <laughs> Speak, speaking of people who have a problem with compression. Yeah. Oh my! It's true, but I thought that was the point of it, right? It was, uh, and and <laughs> don't of course, need that. <laughs> well, you don't need it, but that was the point he was making. He was trying to make you feel like the, how those characters mission were accomplished. Huge, but, <laughs> and I, I I can agree that with you that it might not work. Uh, well, I will argue it did work because it was in fact boring. But I thought that was the <laughs> whole point of it. Detailed way. And as a, and I also I really like the fact. So there, there's this big city on Mercury that's on a, a track because yep. it has to get out of the sun's way. And I thought as I was reading it, this is stupid because who, who would ever live on this kind of uh, precarious situation? And I know something's going to happen to that track. Uh, and then I thought, well, people do live at the base of volcanoes. People live ever. So it's kind of makes sense that when you get to this kind of technological arrogance, you're like, sure, why not live in a moving city on Mercury? What could happen? I, I would be way more impressed had I not seen that exact same device in a Timothy Zahn Star Wars novel 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> well, I probably read that novel, but I don't remember it. The, uh, the thing that got me, though, was, you know, I would say even forget all that. I mentioned it when I was describing why I thought I got brain damage was because the uh, <laughs> the science didn't work. And he's a serious researcher of science. And the reason the Mars books one of the things that's nice about them is the ecological, geological, like there's so much in there that is um, accurate and self-consistent. And you learn a lot about Mars as it is now, in fact, from reading them. And it's got that hard science underlay. He tries to not do things that are impossible. Then you get this thing, and he even states a number of times, oh, talk about redundancy, good gravy, but he states seemingly a number of times that you can have quantum computers, but they can't untangle the quantum uh, entanglement far enough you lose coherence. So you can't get them very very far apart the elements so you can't make an ansible which is a great device word coined by ursula k Le Guin in i think left hand of darkness one of the early books um for a device that basically it's the it's the mcguffin not mcguffin it's the uh 
forget it's the deus ex machina you need in science fiction is you have communicators that are very far apart and they can talk together instantly because stuff. And there should not be any ansibles in this universe. And yet people talk to each other seemingly instantaneously without any explanation. And they also travel across the breadth and length of the solar system, including out of the plane of the elliptic in seemingly ridiculously small amounts of time without any explanation. Uh, it doesn't need an explanation that's good. Glenn, it's 2312. Everything accurate. is yeah, better. Exactly. But he, he has just enough science in it that he has just enough science in it that you expect him to offer here. I'm going to wave my hands and explain why this works. And I'll accept that because that's part of the thing. But then he does stuff that is contradictory to the ability for his universe to be self-consistent. And it irks me. Well, I did not get the feeling that the the trips between – they make a lot of trips to different planets, but I did not get the feeling that those were quick trips. No. I don't think he ever kind of chronologically dates the chapters, so you don't really know how long it takes. I know, but it would be like 20 or 30 years, and instead in the novel, I think it's supposed to take place within a couple of years. But they're just we don't know because they're so they so – they are very long-lived, right? right? So they could take 20 years. They could just be there hanging out on a, a – uh, going from asteroid to asteroid. Who the knows? guy in Venus is only there for a short. You can track the guy in Venus is there for a certain period of time, and <laughs> what happened? The guy in Venus, who's like apparently accidentally placed there and winds up being completely critical to the entire current order of the solar system not being disrupted, because that's how this novel right. works. So, ah. so Glenn doesn't like the science. The science didn't bother me so much. Um, the things that bother me about this novel. Um, Consistency of the science. The the. So the the grand tour aspect of it, I mean, when Dan says that the plot doesn't really start for a while, uh, and I said, you know, is that really the point? I, I don't think it is. I, the plot is thin. The plot is this terrorist kind of-ish plot about they blow up the, they're going to use like the rocks because there are these AIs that are uncontrolled that are being able to figure out these precise details where the rocks seem like they're not connected, but then they come together at the very last minute and they blow things up and it, and it's not necessary. The, the story is, it's an excuse to show these characters on this tour of what humanity is going to be like in 2312. And if you really, if that works for you as a uh, a wonderful tour of the solar system and a vision of what uh, a future of humanity where humanity is taking a bunch of different forms, uh, it's very different from it is today, which which I, I think is to its credit. Because if you look at something like Star Trek that's supposedly set in the far future, but it's just people from today, essentially, and the culture hasn't changed. The fact is that in in 70 years of life, 60 years of life, um, people see huge cultural change in the world around them. If you go ahead 300 years, the cultural change is going to be mind-blowing in terms of things that we think of as awful today, like, I suppose, injecting yourself with alien microbes from Enceladus or where, right? Being in, being in various states of, uh, of uh, very sexual... I don't mind the sexual identity stuff. That's a so clever exploration. So there's but... a bunch of different genders and a bunch of different uh, roles. Very of... complicated to keep track exactly, of. Exactly. Like so much but, uh, so, so I like that, that, that it's like, yeah. this is what the future is like. It's very alien because 300 years from now, if humanity is still alive, whether it's on outer space, you know, hauled asteroids or not, it's going to be very different and, and and would be shocking to us just as, frankly, our culture of 40 years from now will be shocking to us as we're grumpy old men. Um, mm. So that's all That's all fine, and that's, that's very science fictional. Um, my problems are, first off, as a Grand Tour novel, I've seen better. It's not groundbreaking. 
it may be an interesting vision, but like Charles Strauss's Saturn's Children, which was nominated a couple of years ago, which the main character is actually a sex bot. Uh, I thought it was better. <laughs> I thought it was a better grand tour of the solar system in the future. It's very well. Sad. Any any grand tour that includes a sex bot it's, is going to be better. It's a very it's a very space sex opera bot kind of book. Coming through sex bot, but it's like you know we're going to go show you all these planets and how all the different ways people live now. So I didn't think that was special. Um, and and then the other thing that really bothered me about this book is this. Um, yes, Swan is a is a an awful character, and you don't have to have likable characters, but it's harder. You got to work harder if your main character is awful and does stupid things, and at several points jeopardizes like everybody in the book for no good reason, just because she's bored or doesn't she's- care or doesn't think through her actions. She's like. She's like a walking, talking plot complication. It's like the plot would be too simple if Swan didn't come by and do something stupid. Um, but she's – the other problem I have with this is that is that and Glenn and I were talking about it just a moment ago. It's interesting that they talk about the future of people having different genders and multiple genders at once and all the different forms of sexual coupling and all of that. And I thought that was interesting. But at the core of this book is this relationship between Swan, this awful person, and Warum, the kind of frog man from the outer planets. And who's very nice. And they and who's a very nice fellow. And mm-hmm. she is awful and he's nice, but he loves her. I would say kind of inexplicably, but sometimes that it happens. The heart doesn't know from logic. Okay, I'll go with that. Um, and and in the end, I guess the novel sort of portrays that they they get married and they or they are in a relationship and there there's some there's some attachment at the very end, I guess. But um, that was that actually really bugged me because in the hist- in all of human history, there is emotion and love and pair pair bonding and. In this book, I felt like Kim Stanley Robinson excelled at imagining all sorts of different ways that human humans could change their plumbing and their gender identity and their sexual orientation, but he couldn't imagine a future with people who love each other. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and when I realized that this relationship that's supposed to be the, what the novel hinges on is completely barren of any feeling at all, and it's all about the plumbing and the social constructs of gender and orientation, that's when I got mad at this novel and said, this is a guy who loves playing with planets but doesn't know anything about people. And at that point, I decided that I hated it. So that's my story. I think this. I think this is a very interesting cerebral imagination. Like we're in his little imagination land of the future. But as as a novel about human beings and what it means to be human in twenty three twelve, look to a writer who isn't Kim Stanley Robinson because he failed. It's weird though because in the Mars novels he doesn't have that problem at all. It's it's all about people. I mean, it's not yeah. all about people, but the people and they're are not eccentric. all nice, but they're interesting. Yeah, and their relationships are much more meaningful. But this novel complicated. seemed bereft of that it, to me. It yeah. just it felt like these people were awful people who felt no feelings, and even when there was a feeling like Waram liking Swan, it made no sense. And it was almost like he was like adopting a cat. <laughs> I mean, I just I didn't <laughs> I just didn't I felt no love in these characters. Frank was a very complicated character, and he has he you know, he has various moods and darknesses and, and transforms. And through the novels, Frank is like one of the strongest characters, and is not a nice guy for most of it. But you respect him. Right. Well, and Sa- Sax is a mem- Sax is a memorable oh, character yeah. in there, and he's Saxophrase, he's a completely right. flawed human being, but is very interesting. And 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 Swan isn't interesting. She's very flawed. She's not very interesting. <laughs> 
Anyway. Well, I feel like we, we, we came into Swan's life at a point where she had done all of her work. Yeah, she made her little terrariums and she, <laughs> she was done. She made terrariums and she was done and she was just kind of being an awful person untethered to the world, uh, kind of looking for, for meaning and failing to find it. And she fails to find it in a relationship. She fails to find it, yep. you know, trying to solve her, her grandmother's work. Uh, she just... You know, she's unhappy in 2312. Alien microbes can't help her. Nope. Uh, AIs can't help nope. her. Nothing can help her. The AI thing drove me nuts because it's like, oh, my God, the AIs might be in on it. Wait a minute. We should turn them off so they can't hear us because, of course, an off button on an AI yeah. will work perfectly. <laughs> hey, AI, if I turn you off, will you be able to hear me? No. No, not at all. Well, okay, we have then. to trust them absolutely. Turn yourself off. Are you off now? Yes. <clears throat> Damn. <laughs> Darn it. I mean, no. Yes. No. I will say this. Uh, I, I don't think I have encountered a book that was probably better read on in an ebook form because the number of words I had to look up in this book, and I have a pretty good vocabulary. <laughs> I looked up a lot of words. Yeah. He, he seemed to really like words. <laughs> I totally see what this was supposed to right. be, though. This was supposed to be the melding of, I mean, and you can see it, it was supposed to be this very clever melding of yeah. a ton of different ideas he's had percolating. The idea of journal pages from someone who is almost an undead hand of this person trying to help turn the entire, you know, a, 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 not empire, but, you know, collection of planets trying to strive. Yep. It's her journals, her dead hand guiding them through, and this fragmentary knowledge being presented through sort of a flawed grandchild who matures and becomes someone. And you'll, and none of that happens, though. It's all just separate, individual, weird stuff that happens. Well, with and no that's why it doesn't work for me, is that it's not a story. No. Like, mm. And that's that's what I was complaining about with the plot. It's like, an excuse, no, right? The story is an excuse to get them to move happens. around and explore this world because he really just wants to show you this world he's envisioned. And that's great, uh, yeah. but, you know, this is not the medium for that. It's a text adventure without the interactive parts. Yeah, I don't. It's an info dump. It's an info dump. Yeah, yeah, it's someone yeah, telling it, you yeah. for five hundred pages, like oh, I've got all these cool ideas. You really need so, to listen to there's me. There's some things I liked. I liked the uh, people at the edge of the solar system who were building the ship to go to another world, and the AI thing. I really liked. I liked the word salad actually of the AIs that are trying to be oh, yeah. people, and that occasionally you instead of getting these weird info dumps of reference material you get these word salads of it's like this is how an artificial intelligence thinks and it's trying to put things together i thought that was pretty cool um but you know again the, these are the things that i mean i can see why why people would like the grand tour and like this great writer who has written so many things giving you this vision of the future um and revisiting some of the territory and some of his most famous work uh, there are things I can say that I liked about it. But in the end, I mean, this is it's weird. This is like when I try to tell people about why I didn't like Inception. And and it's it's not that I thought it was bad, like poorly executed. It's that I thought about it for a long time and decided that I didn't like it. That's not the same as saying, oh, this is a crappy movie. It's like this is a very interesting work that I want to think about a lot. And then in the end, my verdict is, actually, I think by thinking about it, I've determined that I hate it. And that's sort of how I feel about this. It's that I had to think about it a lot about why I had the feelings I did about it. But in the end, I don't – I think it's a failure. But I, yeah. I don't – I, I would argue yes, please. that to represent the best piece of literature in a year of any genre, it should be the book that makes you think the most, whether or not uh, you like it or not, right? So well, I think I should, Ideally, I would like it and it would make me think. Well, no. I mean, but I think uh, 
depends. It depends on what you're reading, right? Then so I, I took you... lots of notes during Blackout. Does that mean it's the best book? <laughs> I, well, I, what I thought in Blackout <laughs> was mostly why, God, why. <laughs> well, but you thought it a lot. I, I, I think I came down somewhere in between you, Jason, and Scott, which is that I don't know that I have the energy to hate this book. There is no just, middle ground. Uh, well, I was <laughs> just, I, I was just like I was. I'm reading this, you know, and I'm slogging through it, and I'm reading it. You know, in my major amount of reading time, which is like right before I go to bed. And let me tell you how this is not a great book to read right before you go to bed. Because I mean, unless you want to go to bed, in which case it works great. Um, But yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's, I I didn't, I don't have the energy to deal with this book. This is fascinating. I mean, I I love that we've got all these different, different views about this book. And, you know, again, I've talked, I've talked to people who hated it and then i've seen people love it and it's won awards and i don't i don't hate it it's it just not frustrates it's not me. it's not incompetently i mean no. again my apologies my apologies to mira grant and her writer behind the pseudonym but that's a book that's not executed well at all it's a poorly written it's just a bad book it's poorly written it doesn't make any sense it's bad in every conceivable way essentially this is not like that this is not the work of somebody who doesn't know what he's doing he knows exactly what he's doing and and full credit to him for that he's got a lot of really interesting ideas there's a lot that he's thrown in here i don't think it works but you got to give him credit it it is not an empty box that he's trying to foist off on us all he's a smart guy i just i something didn't something did not work here it's things that are bland can make us crazier than things we hate because you can feel strongly about something that you hate. You're like, here's why. And these are the things that are wrong. You you just shrug off that other stuff. It's horrible. When it's bland, you're like, oh, there's so, uh." the one I will say there was one thing I'd really did like in this was the rock swarm. I thought that was very clever, very well hidden throughout it. And it built up. It was the only plot thing that actually sort of made sense and was a through line to the end. But then when you determined the cause of it, it was absurd and uninteresting, but the idea of it and how it was built into the plot was actually rather clever. Well, yeah, that, that was the point where I started to get interested was I actually liked the mystery part of it. And the, I think among my favorite chapters in there are the ones with the inspector where they try to sort of puzzle through uh, Is the inspector a he or she? Is it a he or she? He's Yes. It's referred to as a he several times. Well, yeah. take a look because... she earlier did you, on. Did you notice, did I got you notice something? There's a, trick at, there's a trick in there. Every time the inspector Jeanette is mentioned... There is never I w- I can't confirm this. I haven't searched the entire novel. There's never a gender used. It's always Jean Jeanette, which is you typically. No, a I saw it used as a he. Yeah, I, I swear. He. Yes, because okay. I noted I saw it there and said and thought to myself, wasn't 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 that a woman? But, but in twenty but in twenty three twelve, you be. have people who identify as male, and that means that their their penis is larger than their vagina. I, Not yes. that they don't have both. Also, also, so, I love that we no. haven't invented we haven't invented new pronouns despite inventing. Well, we have, but Jeff. Kim Stanley Robinson has to translate them for our crazy twentieth century years. How about a novel just about Inspector Jeanette? Because I'd kind of liked him. Well, that him see, that reminded me that. of the the main character in the uh, in the book that we read. I can't remember now, Scott. It was the the oh, cop the, with the the space, the space fedora, yeah, vomiting. Oh yeah, stuff. I love that guy. The vomit yeah, zombie, yeah. that guy. The you know, yeah, yeah. he had a space. He was, f- he was a wonderful character. The best character in the yeah and the thing that was so pretty, that reminded that me of that character which again speaking of space opera deep deep space humanity out in the outer solar system kind of fun thing books that i enjoyed more than this one but so okay we have five <laughs> we have five novels um, wow. i'm gonna Good i'm work. gonna ask each of you to uh to to rank them really quickly from best to worst because i think Ooh. that would be interesting i can go first um i i say throne of the crescent moon first uh 
and then I have a a a large drop off, and then I think I say Captain Four Patrol, and then uh, Red Shirts because I actually like those, and then it's twenty three twelve, and then it's Blackout. Scott, what about you? Don't understand that ranking, but no, so no award uh... falls somewhere between. Uh, twenty somewhere around twenty three twelve. I'm not sure above or below. <laughs> uh, so twenty three twelve is uh my first choice. Uh, then Captain Vorpal's Alliance, uh, Throne of the Crescent Moon, Red Shirts, No Award. Yes, No Award. Blackout. Blackout. We agree on No Award and Blackout. Yes. <laughs> Dan, uh, I'll say Captain Vorpal's Alliance is my favorite. Uh, then I will say Throne of the Crescent Moon, which is second, should win or should have won. Um, because of the series thing, red shirts, 2312 didn't read blackout and feel like I'm okay with that. Yeah. Glenn. I think I would go in order. I guess it's things I like that I actually enjoyed reading in the order. I enjoyed reading them, which I hope corresponds to the order. I think I should be recommending to people is, uh, I think captain of Patrol's Alliance, red shirts, throne of the crescent moon. And I, I don't want to say I didn't differentiate between them, but you know, sort of loosely in that order. And then, you know, very, very, very far down 2312. And I would not recommend blackout to anyone. What about you, Monty? Throne of the crescent moon made me want to read more by that author. Red shirts made me generally okay huh. with reading more scalzy. Want to read the center <laughs> of more things by that author. <laughs> Well, the problem is every time I read something by John Scalzi, it's because somebody has linked me to him being a really mean to someone. Yeah. So, and I got kind of tired of that. And Red Shirts kind of turned me around on that. I said, oh, he can actually write fiction. Yeah. So Old Man's War is good. Yeah. yeah. It's on mm-hmm. my bookshelf. Right. There's a lot of things on my bookshelf. Yeah. And then Blackout on the bottom. Okay. That's a good place for it. <laughs> I am willing to... Well, I, I, I will be interested to see what actually wins the Hugo. I, I would guess it's going to be Red Shirts because, uh, because Scalzi. I, I think it's, Although Kim I think Stanley it's Robinson won the Nebula, so who knows? Uh-huh, it's true. Who votes on the Nebula? Uh, sci-fi writers. Yeah, it's the SF, right. uh, Science Fiction Writers Association of America. Yeah, it's just the, the fan mobilization. I mean, what won the last two years? Wasn't it the... No, uh, uh, Blackout All Clear by uh, by uh, Connie uh, Willis. Okay. Connie Willis, and one. among others like, by Joe, and Wilson. among others, which okay. was a great. Choice. Okay, so that's reliable. So she's got she's got the uh, she she's got the chops to get nominated for all her zombie novels, but not not necessarily win more. so far. No, she won't. She won't. So uh, yeah, Blackout's not going to win. <laughs> no, I I would hope not. Keep telling and yourself if it does, that, Scott. I am Keep not reading yourself. the Hugo. No, if, if it, we've <laughs> this is the end. Said this before. If, <laughs> Ultimatum. If uh, if 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 Blackout wins, if 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 any of those novels win, then we switch it, and next year you'll be listening to us talk about the Hugo or the uh, Nebula nominees instead. <laughs> um, speaking of which, I wanted to point out one of the Nebula nominees I've read. It's N.K. Jemison who wrote an excellent oh, book that was a yes. Hugo nominee and and has written a great trilogy. This is the first book in a new series called Dream Blood. The book is called The Killing Moon. Uh, it was nominated for the Nebula, but not the Hugo. Um, and uh, I don't know if you guys have read it. Uh, Scott and Glenn yeah, may yeah. have. Uh, it, I will, it, though. I would, say, I, I would say it's better than any of the Hugo nominees. I liked it a lot. It's not... It's not super spectacular one of my favorites of all time kind of thing but i liked it and one of the things i liked about it is although it's got some of the setting stuff culturally that throne of the crescent moon does in that it's this middle eastern-esque culture it's not just like a a patina over a standard story right no it's very different it's about a guy who's like 
a a taker of souls, but he's a compassionate taker of souls. And there's this whole brotherhood of the compassionate takers of souls, but they they can be corrupted and turned to a reaper, which is an evil stealer of souls no for bad purposes. And there's a there's a an evil king, and there is this whole political machination thing happening and a war between these two there's an ambassador and and there it's it's uh it's there's the whole intrigue. there's intrigue out in the there's desert a master and an apprentice there's a master and an apprentice <laughs> uh and it's it's better than throne of the crescent moon and i think i think it was the the, the yes. better than the five nominees so if you if you're if we've dispirited you about the hugo nominees maybe try nk jemison's killing moon she has written That's a bunch true. of uh this is her fourth i think novel because she wrote that trilogy and then this this is the first in this other series uh i thought it was really good so i think she and i think she's really good because i know you guys really liked that um the other two books in the trilogy that started with hundred thousand kingdoms i think was the first book yeah that i've read first, uh, yes. all three that was the first and i would say all three of them were better than any of this year's nominees uh, each of them it's one of the good trilogies actually out there it is a good trilogy and i have i've written uh on my blog i'm a blogger yes oh my God. scott's blog uh, are, you, are you licensed nine books that i thought should have been nominated whoa <laughs> wow wow Whoa! If anyone cares. We'll have to, we'll have probably to the best one is uh, the Fractal Prince, but uh, based on the reactions to twenty three twelve, everyone other than me on this podcast will hate the Fractal Prince. I, I read the first book in that series and quite liked it. So do you, it kind of cranks up the the, the weird knob on the <laughs> yes the almost incomprehensible. I, I technology. did not think that was one of the ones where I did not think I would like it, and I almost put it down within the first twenty pages. And then I don't know what hooked me, but I really ended up enjoying that book. So, and I, I was just looking at my wish list and noticed that the Fractal Prince was on it. Well, I blame then you, you should Scott. read it. Okay, I don't know what year anything came out, but I just read the Night Circus, and I thought that was okay. <laughs> Oh yeah, I like that. Oh one a lot. wow, that was that's, a couple of years ago though. That's yeah. one of my favorite books. I was gonna throw, wasn't, books of all time. Wasn't the uh, wasn't the Rook from this year? Yeah, I nominated it, and it yes. didn't. Okay, I was gonna say it. that was my one of my favorite books from this year. Because that it I read. won the Australian equivalent. Good fan, good friend. Yeah, mate. Which is in me- it's in metric, so <laughs> <laughs> and upside down. It drives on the wrong side of the road. It has a pouch. Yes. Yeah, I, that was I nominated the Rook, and I nominated the Dog Stars, and my things didn't yep. get nominated, which made me sad because. I actually read some some things that were that were better than these nominees and tried to get them nominated and it didn't happen. Oh well. Oh. Such is life. When the results are announced uh, later this summer, we will find out. Perhaps we can use our massive influence as a podcast to mobilize people to pay $65 next year and nominate quality novels for the Hugo that we like. Perhaps. Our, our incredible power. And while they're there, they can nominate us for the uh, fan cast award, too. They oh, yes. Yeah. It's an outrage. Yes. Ever suggest <laughs> such a thing. However, we know that the Hugos are not the scientific d- determiner of the best podcast. That's the Parsec Awards, which, as we Absolutely. said earlier, we are nominated again. And thank you to them and all the wise, wise people who they are nominated impeccable. For that. Although they there may have been some kind of mistake in their audio drama department. There may have been. <laughs> may possibly I'm gonna just I'm gonna just take what I can get. I'm gonna... I forgot to update my PHP script to vote for us there. Sorry, that's a, that's a shame. <laughs> you. All right, so that's it. We did it. We did it. We read Hooray. most or all of the Hugo novels. Scott and I get the gold stars again. Five for five. Woohoo! We read another one of those mm. books, Scott. I know. Yay. We read the whole trilogy. <laughs> oh. oh. 
add the short story or no? No, no I, I, well, didn't, I, did, I didn't read that. No, you, uh. you get the you get the br- the brown star for that one. Good job. <laughs> oh. <laughs> How lucky for you, yeah, man! I feel special. Well. Well, I'm glad at least that I will never have to read a Miracran novel <laughs> Don't again. Don't say that. Oh, Don't wow. say that. Why would you? Why would you jinx yourself? Oh my like god! That? And I'm only one day away from retirement. <laughs> <laughs> then she writes a new series that's about podcasters who fight Frankenstein's. <laughs> oh man, man! Oh, I'd love that though. That sounds great. So we did it. We read them. Um, I like doing this. Uh, I liked it less this year than in previous years. <laughs> I don't think this is a very strong crop. Uh, when I enjoyed the, I, I actually was. I also read the first in that Mary Robinette Kowal series about the uh, oh, the Victorian series about the glamorist people. Yeah. So glamour and glass should have also been right. Made, I, I read the, the first book in that, in that book, series, figuring I would need for to second. write. I would need to read the second one, and then it didn't get nominated for the Hugo, so I didn't need to read it. But that that was a better series too. So yeah. And the second book has a lot more action. Oh, good. The first book the fir- is good, the but first uh, book it's kind is, of a lot of people sitting is around. people and worried about offending other people and, yeah. Yes. And, and occasional p- dinner parties with magical glamours. Yes. There's still some dinner parties with <laughs> glamours, but there's also a Napoleonic soldiers and an escape. Oh, that's thing, nice. So. Well, I'll, I'll have to check that out. All right. So that is the that is our Hugo novel episode for this year. Uh, we, read, we read them. We did it. Hooray! We, we made it to the end, and I would like to thank my guests for coming along on this journey with me. Scott McNulty, as always, thank you for reading all the five books. You get, in addition to that brown star, you do get the the gold the golden eye glasses for being our ace reader. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. You get a Coke. Uh, oh God, I, I like Pepsi. It's actually. too bad. Stick your finger in this hole first. Yeah. Though. The needles will come out. <laughs> That's what I'm doing later. Okay. Fear is the mind killer. Glenn Fleischman, thank you for reading the books. It was a pleasure to be here, more so than reading all the books, but a pleasure yes. to be part of this. Yes, at least you have the podcast to look forward to after you read the books. That's the nice thing about it's reading true. these books. Is if they do offend you, you say, well, I'm going to give them the what for on the podcast. I'll show Revenge. them. I'll have it I'll have an opinion on the That's internet. That's right. That that Yay. makes it all better. Monty Ashley, thank you for uh, for coming in at the last minute and reading many books. I actually did something with my week. Hooray! Hooray! <laughs> I'm sorry we made you read that Mira Grant book, though. I'm sorry about that. I kept telling you to stop, Monty. It's your own fault. We'll give you candy later. Ooh! Hooray! I win. But you can say you did it. <laughs> it's like climbing a mountain. A crappy, crappy mountain. <laughs> <laughs> and Dan Morin, you, you know, didn't read it. You were the wisest of us all. Thank you for being here. Well, I'm on, I'm on every podcast. I can't read every can't book. Can't read every book. I, have, I only have so much time. So true. So true. And thank you to our sponsor, Audible, where you can actually listen to these very books that we talked about at audiblepodcast.com slash incomparable. Until next time, I've been Jason Snell, and I continue to be Jason Snell, the host of The Incomparable. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Uh, Take a look. It's in a book, A Reading Rainbow. We'll see you next time. 